Once again, that's rbcbakersfield.org. So if you want to listen to these again or recommend these to individuals um, who maybe missed the conference, really do encourage you to send them to that website. There are also other resources there. Uh, I believe also Richard Barcelos, when he came last year, he did a whole series on covenant theology. There are sermons from our elders here as well. So without further ado, let's begin our second session. Brother Sam. Thank you for your attention in the first hour. I hope that it's, sometimes it's hard for me as a speaker to gauge my speed. Sometimes I'm, I'm told that I'm going too fast or things like that. But I hope that the outline, if I was going too fast, I apologize. That I, hope, I hope if I was, the outline was keeping you with me as we kind of go down the road at 90 miles per hour, which is somewhat my fault. But in this lesson, we're going to be in the kiddie pool <laughs> because you get to learn about yourself. You get to learn about yourself. And honestly, the things that, that we learn in this lesson, I found myself often having sort of, now I, now I understand my craziness, now, now I understand my everyday life, you know, when I begin to, to realize what I'm made of, how I'm made up, and, and how I'm affected by the world. And so that's why the title of this lesson is Impassibility and Humanity. And the reason why we're studying this is, once again, to, to repeat, so that we better know how to take love and put it on a human and take love and put it on the divine nature. We need to understand the human, the human part, the human half of the equation, uh, so that we can better understand ourselves and our God. And the more you understand how you relate to love and anger and other passions and affections, the more you'll realize those things cannot happen in God. God cannot be undergoing those things. They cannot be happening to God when you understand how it really works in us. So then as to understanding who and what we are, the first thing that we need to realize is something that's very obvious but very important. Man is a created being. Man is a created being. We are not creators. We do not exist in and of ourselves. We are created beings. We are creatures. How did God create us? If God created us, we are what we are because God made us that way. What is the way in which God has made us? What constitutes man's nature? And as you can see in your outlines in, in point number one, we are made, as, we are made up of parts. A, a human creature, all, all created things are made up of parts, but human creatures, humans are made up of parts, in particular a material part, the body, and an immaterial part, the soul. In Genesis, God creates, he forms the man's body from the dust of the earth, and then he breathes life into it. You have a material part created, and then an immaterial part that is placed in the body, the body and the soul. These are the parts of human nature. You and I, it makes up what we are. We are body and soul, material and immaterial. But within our bodies and our souls, in our parts, we have faculties. We have sort of powers, you might say, in our bodies and in our souls. Our bodies can do things. Our souls can do things. They have faculties. When we start to say we have powers, it sounds like, wow, what are your powers? Oh, well, I have invisibility and oh, I can fly and things like that. No, we're just talking about normal, everyday, Joe Schmo human nature. Just you and me, who and what we are. So, for example, the body has faculties of physical strength and all kinds of senses of sight and smell and sound and taste and things like that. You have the capacity to do things with your body, such as the senses, uh, etc. But you also have faculties in your immaterial part. You have faculties in your soul, in particular your mind 
and your will. If I said to you, show me the faculty by which you smell things, you'd show me your nose. If I said, show to me the faculty by which you touch things, you would use your hands or, or part of your skin, etc. If I said, show to me the faculty by which you have knowledge and make decisions, mind and will, you would not be able to produce a, a physical entity for me. Surely the, the soul works itself out in the body, and so you could show me your brain, but your, your brain is really just giving information, collecting information from the body, but your mind is ultimately an immaterial thing. You cannot say, this is my mind. Here, look at it. Wow, that's a, that's a terrible mind. No. <laughs> and so also, if I said, show me your will, you could not produce a will for me to look at and examine. It's immaterial. It's in your soul. It's a part of your spiritual nature, so to speak, your invisible, your immaterial nature. It's part of what you are. So those are your parts and your faculties. Very simple, basic things, but very important things because they help us to realize what we're made of and how humans work. So your body has faculties, your soul has faculties, and I'm, I'm um, asking you to focus on the mind and the will, your faculties of mind and will, which are immaterial. They are seated in the soul. They are faculties of the soul. So we know who and what we are. We're created beings with material and immaterial parts, body and soul, various faculties, and we're looking at the faculties of the soul, mind, and will. So think about everyday life. You're walking around Bakersfield, or you go down to Disneyland, 15 minutes away from my house, and you're walking around, and you're looking at things. You're taking in through your body all sorts of sights and sounds and smells and things that you're touching. You're collecting that information. Your brain is bringing it all together, and your mind is interpreting those things. You're interpreting the world around you, and as you interpret the world around you, you start to make decisions. I will walk here. No, I will walk there. I will pick this up. I will put that down. I will eat this. I will not eat that. You're going to gather all this information. You're going to think about it. You're going to analyze it with your mind. You're going to interpret it. And then you're going to make decisions and do stuff. That's just what we do every day. Uh, we make decisions based on the things that we know. We know these things somewhat based on the, the, the data we've collected through our senses and things like that, and we go about our daily lives. Well, whenever you make a decision and, and you do something, essentially, whenever your, your mind interprets something and then you decide to do something about it, that is a passion or an affection. That's a passion or an affection. Why do I say that? Well, I've given you a definition of affections and passions in your, in your handout, and it's something we're going to kind of unpack all throughout the, le- the rest of this lesson. So if at first some of the pieces aren't quite coming together, bear with me, please, as we try to sort of explain how the parts and faculties of human nature all come together in the affections and passions. So how am I describing or defining affections and passions? Though so the actions of the will... Towards what we think is good, that's a key word, towards, as in attraction, towards what we think is good and away from what we think is bad. So I'm going to interpret things around me as good or bad. I'm going to be drawn to the good and repulsed from the bad. I'm going to have attraction to the good and repulsion. I I don't want the bad. I do want the good. I'm going to make decisions that take me towards the good things and I'm going to make decisions that take me away from the bad things. Now, when you interpret your world around you and you interpret things as good or bad and then you make a decision relative to that object, either loving the good or hating the bad, etc., those are affections and passions. You have just been changed 
based on something around you that you have interpreted. You have been changed because before encountering that object, I was one way. Now that I've encountered that object, I've just made a decision to do something and go someplace relative to that object. I have encountered something and I have been changed by it. Think about it like this. If you go to a buffet, there will be a large number of foods and drinks available to you. You have all sorts of things before you. Your physical senses as you walk around the buffet will gather data. You'll see sights. You'll see smells. You shouldn't touch, but maybe if you're you know, 10 years old, you'll touch the food because you're curious about it. And then you're going to interpret those things as good or bad. Ew, I don't like that. Or, oh man, I really want that chocolate mousse. Or you say, oh, I hate cherry Dr. Pepper. That's disgusting. You know, so you're going you're gonna to decide, I like this, I don't like that, based on whether you think it's good or bad. You're drawn towards the chocolate mousse. You're repulsed by the, the uh, cherry Dr. Pepper. Well, those are affections and passions of love and hatred based on what you have interpreted as good or bad. You have just come into a state of loving chocolate mousse. You've just come into a state of hating cherry Dr. Pepper because you interpret one as good and the other as bad. Your love and your hate depend on those objects. If the chocolate mousse wasn't there, you wouldn't be loving anything. If the, doc, if the cherry Dr. Pepper, I keep saying diet, diet cherry Dr. Pepper, even worse. If that weren't there, <laughs> if that weren't there, you wouldn't be hating anything. Those objects are bringing about in you new states of being. I have become loving towards this good thing I have interpreted as good. I have become hateful, which is the opposite of of loving. I, I dislike this thing that I perceive as bad. And so that's why when we talk about affections and passions, we are affected by things around us, or we are in a passion. We undergo, we are worked upon, we are the patient and something is acting upon us. The chocolate mousse is acting upon me strongly. Oh, yes. Oh, yes, chocolate mousse. I will come to you, certainly. And the Dr. Pepper is, is repulsing me. It's pushing me away in so, many, in so many words. I'm being acted upon by those external objects. I was not in a state of attraction or repulsion until I encountered them. And in a buffet, you're going to be constantly going one way and the next, you know, depending on what you like or dislike. And so that's a way to illustrate affections and passions as encountering objects, interpreting them as good or bad, and then reacting to them accordingly towards the good and away from the evil or what you think is bad. So look at also under number two in your outlines. I'm going to give you a list of affections and passions in pairs of opposites. They're pairs of opposites. Why are they pairs of opposites? Because it depends on if you think a thing is good or bad. And so you begin with love and hate. I perceive something as good. I love it. I'm drawn towards it. The opposite, repulsed, hate. Desire and repulsion. In many ways, the affections and passions are often the same thing, but with different names as humans experience them. Desire and repulsion. I desire one thing because I think it's good. I'm repulsed because I think it's bad. Joy. What makes me joyous? Things that I think are bad? No. You're not going to be made joyful by something that you truly think is bad. What will make you sad? Something that you truly think is bad. You see, it's not extremely complicated. We just haven't really heard it explained to us quite like this most of the time. Hope and despair. Do you hope for or hope in something that you think is bad? No, you hope in and hope for that which is good. And you despair over, which is the opposite of hope in in Spanish, esperanza and desesperanza. It's more clear in that language. Hope and despair, they're opposites. 
We hope for what is good and we despair over what is bad. Confidence. What, what brings about in me confidence? Well, someone, someone or something that's good, often in war, you know, I, I really respect that leader. I want to follow them and soldiers go willingly to the threat of their deaths because they're convinced the cause is good and the person they're following into battle is good. But if they have a bad lieutenant, a bad squad leader, a bad general, or a bad cause, they'll say no and they might be afraid. Or they may think the enemy is so powerful that it's not good to engage them, it's bad to engage them. I'm afraid of this. It's also self-preservation. It's bad to get hurt. It's bad to die. I'm afraid. I don't want that thing. I don't want to be involved in that thing. You see that the the fear and the and the um, confidence depend on the objects outside of you and around you. Mercy and wrath. Mercy. I will help this thing that is suffering because I think that it's a good thing to help them. Or wrath. I want this thing to suffer. I want this thing to experience that which is that which is uh, difficult or painful because I don't like that thing. I help, I have mercy on those that I like. I am wrathful or vengeful towards those that I dislike, good and bad. See, this is everyday life for you and me. We walk around the world. We interpret things around us as good or bad. And then all this flood of human affection and passion or emotion is what happens to us. We undergo these things. And we're going to keep talking about this, but in many ways we can't help but undergo these things. We, we'd, have to, we'd cease to be human if we were impervious or impassable to all of the things that are around us in our environment. We can't escape it. It's just our nature. And that's okay. It's okay to be creaturely. It's just who we are. But now we have a better understanding of who we are because of these things. Now, a question that you might have is, okay, Pastor Renahan, that's very interesting the way that you've put this together. And again, this is not me being clever. This is coming from many uh, theologians in the past. You may say, this is very interesting how you put put this together. But is this scriptural? You know, you started out with lesson one, three sets of scripture passages, data, things like that, and okay, I can follow you there, but here, you're telling me things, is this, does this come from the scriptures, this understanding of man's parts and faculties and passions and affections? And the answer is, absolutely, this is biblical. So I'd like you to turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2, <clears throat> verses 1 to 3. As a general rule, if people took the time to sit, to write and publish things in the past, especially in the 17th century, I'll say, they probably had a good reason for doing so. You'll find that their statements are well thought out and well reasoned. Not always. I, we can't revere history as though it's, it's perfect or something like that. We read it with eyes wide open. But at the same time, there's a lot of wisdom and good reasons behind things that were said before. And so these definitions and explanations of passions and affections that I'm giving to you from others well before me, they had good reasons for doing so. They had biblical reasons for doing so. And passages like Ephesians 2, verses 1 to 3, are a big part of that. We're going to look especially at verse 3. But we'll start reading in verse 1. Ephesians 2, 1 to 3. Paul says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Verse 3. Among whom we all once lived, in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest 
of mankind. What are the passions of the flesh? The passions of the flesh are defined immediately after carrying out the desires of the, of the body or the, the body and the mind. Your natural appetites and dispositions, the natural inclination of your will, and what you know according to your mind, when you carry out those things, those are the passions of your flesh. And Paul's describing an unregenerate, someone who has not yet been born again. He's describing a sinner before God's grace is active in their life. And so they're acting according to a will that is inclined to sin and a mind whose understanding is darkened and suppresses the truth. So that person, will they rightly interpret what is good and bad in the world? No, they're going to completely make everything opposite. They're going to interpret bad as good and good as bad. And so the passions of the flesh, without God's grace working in our lives, are going to love what is bad and hate what is good, even though in their minds they think they're loving what's good and hating what's bad, but it's because their understanding is darkened. So also they will hope in what is bad, and they will have joy in what is bad, and they will have mercy on things that are bad, etc., etc., because they completely switch the objects of their affections. They completely switch in their minds what is good and bad. But the, the point is that Paul is speaking of human nature in such a way that what we are and what we do are passions. We interpret with the mind and we carry out those desires according to who and what we are, according to our wills, which are tied to our natures. And so when I describe these things to you in the first part of this lesson, we're really just drawing from the way that Paul describes human nature. He speaks in a similar way in Titus 3.3. 3. It's one verse. I'll read it for you. Paul says, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, Slaves to various passions and pleasures. As we, he's saying before, we did what we wanted. As we encountered things like animals, we go straight for it. Sometimes you'll hear older reader or older writers speaking of animal passions. They're talking about passion without intelligence. Animals have appetites. When I want to eat, the dog think. well, the dog isn't really thinking, but the dog in its natural passions, it wants to eat, it's going to eat. My dog will beg for food an hour before it's time to eat because the dog wants food and it doesn't matter how many times. I can't say, Lily, I will feed you at noon. It's 40 minutes until noon, Lily. Just wait until noon. No, she's going to press her head on my leg until I feed her, but I'm not going to feed her early because I'm a good owner. But she can't be reasoned with. The only way is to train and discipline a dog that absolute obedience is good so they get rewards or they get punishments. And then they learn good or bad from, from discipline, not from reason and, you know, lectures. You don't reason and lecture with your dog. You, you teach them what's good and bad by teaching their senses what's good and bad. I like my master's pleasure. I don't like my master's displeasure. So I'm going to work according to their schedule. Those are animal passions. They do what fits with their appetites. And Paul's saying that's what we were like. We, we just did what seemed good to us. We did what we wanted to do when, the, when what we wanted to do was completely wrong. Passing our days, as he says, in malice and envy, hated by others, and hating one another. So we can understand how the curse of sin would affect our passions and affections. In our uh, Confession of Faith, London Baptist Confession of Faith, in the chapter on sin and the fall of man, chapter 6, it says... That man, because of the curse of sin, this isn't in your, in your outlines, forgive me. Man, because of the curse of sin, is wholly defiled in all of the faculties and parts of soul and body. In other words, sin affects your mind and it affects 
your will and it affects your body because you're going to die and your body does not work properly. So your mind, your will, and your bodily affection, all the, your bodily faculties, excuse me, all of these things are cursed. So your affections, your love and your hate and your joy and your sorrow uh, uh, and all these things, they're wrong. They're all wrong. They're on the wrong objects for the wrong reasons. We suppress the truth. We believe lies. We believe lies, etc. We choose to do evil because we think it's good. We think it's good. We think it's the right, not the right thing to do in a just sense, but we think this is the best thing for me. We think that evil is the best thing. I mean, we, some of you, I'm sure, have known or know or perhaps have personally experienced issues of, of addiction with substance abuse. And that person, no matter how many times they have known or are told that is bad for you, when the moment comes, ultimately they do what they do because they think it's good for them. In the insanity of their mind, in the insanity of the addiction, they think that when they put these substances into their body, this is good, I need this. Ultimately, that's what they're thinking in that moment. They think it's good. Well, we often act the same way. Paul describes fallen man in this way. But you know, he also speaks to believers like this. He treats them in the same way, but as believers, as those whose minds have been enlightened and whose wills have been changed, their natures have been changed. But he still treats them as people who interpret things as right and wrong and carry out those desires accordingly. How does he do so? He teaches us what right and wrong actually are and tells us to pursue righteousness and to shun evil based on what God says is righteous and what God says is evil. And Paul can tell us this because when we're born again, when God regenerates us, he changes our mind. He changes our will. He changes our nature. And so what the believer knows and what the believer chooses to do, which are those become affections, are different from the unbeliever. Ephesians 4.23, Paul says we're being renewed in our minds. We're being retrained as to what is good and what is bad. Colossians 3.10, Paul says that we're being renewed in knowledge. That's how Paul addresses Christians over and over again. Our minds are being changed. In Galatians 5, verses 24 to 25, Paul says those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. We don't do what the, sinful, what the sin that remains in us wants to do and thinks is good, but rather we do that which God says is good according to his will. We sanctify our minds. We sanctify our wills according to God's word. But when Paul says that we crucify the flesh with its passions, he isn't saying that we cease to experience passions or affections. He's not saying that we cease to be passable creatures. Rather, we change the way that we experience those things because our minds and our wills have been changed. And then he goes on to talk about the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, but love on the right objects and joy in the right objects, not the passions of our flesh, those things that God tells us to invest ourselves in and to be joyous about and loving towards. So now the, the, the regenerated, the newborn Christian, with his mind being instructed and corrected by the word of God and his will acting according to a new nature, his love is towards God above all things. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And out of that soul commitment comes all the other obedience of the believer according to God's word revealed in his, uh, God's, God's will revealed in his word. Now we have affections properly lined up with who God says we ought to be and how we ought to live. In Colossians 3, verse 2, 
Paul says in the ESV, set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. If you have an older translation, Paul says, set your affections on things that are above. Why would they have translated it that way? Set your affections on things that are above. Well, take the list that we, that we have used in this lesson, this list of opposites, and put those things, set those on that which is from above. And so you will love that which is heavenly. You will desire that which is heavenly. You will be joyful in that which is heavenly. You will hope for that which is heavenly. You will have confidence in that which is heavenly. And the reason he says that is that, or excuse me, the reason that they translated that, that, that way is that behind the, the English, the Greek, is a word about the mind, phronete. Uh, we, it, it is a word that describes the way that one thinks. But they translated it as affections because what Paul is saying is not just go through the intellectual exercise of thinking about things that are heavenly. That, that's not Paul's point. He's not just saying put your mind on those things. It's to be worked out in everyday life and in everyday action. You, your mind is controlled and consumed by those things so that as you desire that which is heavenly, you live out that which is heavenly every single day in your life. Your affections are set on things above. And if you follow the rest of the chapter, Paul says, put to death <laughs> the sinful nature. And he says, put on the new man, Jesus Christ. You're a new man in the new man, which is the collective body of Christ, in the new man, Jesus Christ. And so, to set your affections on things above works itself out in learning what not to do in killing sin, and learning what to do in pursuing holiness. Christian takes that new knowledge and puts it into practice, and that's what the affections are. Our minds are transformed, our wills are transformed, and so our affections and our passions are transformed. What we love and hate, what makes us happy and sad, what makes us confident and fearful, what makes us hopeful and what makes us despair, all of these things change when we set our minds, our affections, on things above, on new resurrected life in Jesus Christ. And once again, this is... Something outside of us is changing us. That's not a bad thing. It's just that a wonderful thing is changing us now. God, through his word, through his Holy Spirit working inside of us. And so it's not bad to be changed. It's not bad to be worked upon. It's not bad to be passable. It's just eminently and purely and thoroughly creaturely. It's just our human existence, but now it's our human existence with the blessing of God and with the power of God working within us. So, brothers and sisters, we need to sanctify our affections. Sanctify our affections. That means rightly understand what is good and bad and rightly order our affections accordingly, putting our positive affections, that which is towards the good, on things which are truly good, according to God's word, and vice versa. Running away from, shunning those things which are bad, all according to God's law. Think about what we've said to this point, and you'll see that you know yourself better now. You are a creature with a body and soul, and you have faculties in your body and soul, and as you go through life, you're constantly encountering innumerable objects that you are interpreting as good or bad. In other words, the world is a buffet, and you're constantly evaluating what you want from it. You are drawn to some things, you are repulsed by others. And why is that? It's because your mind is interpreting those things around you as good or bad. 
How is it making those judgments? By the desires of the flesh, sinful impulses and appetites, or by the word of God that's sanctifying us. And you see, brothers and sisters, this opens our eyes to the nature of temptation. Satan tampered with Eve and Adam's knowledge of what is good and what is bad. Did God really say that this would happen? He made eating the fruit a good thing. He made it desirable. He made what would come from eating the fruit of the knowledge of true and evil to be viewed as good by Adam and Eve so that they would then act towards it. But to, to do that, first he had to tamper with their knowledge. He had to corrupt God's word and distort God's word and misuse it to them. And then they, with that distortion of reality, which switched what is good and bad, made a choice accordingly. And we do the very same thing. We are confronted with the very same thing. Temptation makes us think that something bad is good. And so we act accordingly. Thomas Brooks' uh, book, Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices, the title is simple when you think about it, Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices, his crafts, his ways of tempting God's people. The very first way that Thomas Brooks says we need to fight against Satan's temptations is he says, Satan presents the bait and hides the hook. He presents the bait and hides the hook. So all you see is good food. I want that bait. That's good. And he hides the hook. He hides, it's actually bad. And so if we are sanctifying our affections, we will be fighting against temptation because we're going to insist that what God says is good and what God says is bad is bad. And I'm only going to go after what God says is good and I'm always going to shun what God says is bad. Now, we're committed to those things. We do not carry out those those commitments faithfully, but at least now we can have a better understanding of the mechanics of human nature relative to temptation and better understand how to fight against it. I need to discipline my mind about what is good and what is bad. We could, we could reuse the illustration of the person with an addiction to some kind of substance or really an addiction to any kind of sin. They think when they perform that, that sin, that action of sin, they think it's good. They want it. That's why they act towards it. And afterwards, they will regret it. They will regret it. And they will think it's bad and terrible. Why did I ever think that was good? But then comes another moment where they think it's good again. And every single one of us can understand exactly what I'm talking about. Because to one degree or another, in various different sins, we've done the same. Why did I do that? And if we're honest with ourselves, it's because we thought it was good in that moment. It could be a split-second decision, but ultimately, you thought it was good in some twisted and strange way that only Satan can bring about by twisting reality in the word of God. It started in the beginning with Satan and Adam and Eve changing what God said. You shall not surely die. Okay, so eating the fruit's not bad anymore. You will be wise like God. Oh, so eating the fruit is good. You see? Now, I'm not, I'm not the kind of person that tries to scare people, so understand what I'm about to say. But advertising and media are constantly trying to entice you to think that one thing is good and another thing is bad. I'm not saying, so get out your tinfoil hats and turn off your TVs and your radios. But just be aware of the fact that every day, all day pretty much, people are trying to tell you what is good and what is bad so that when you go and buy their product, they've just affected you. (laughs) They've just changed your mind and you've made a decision according to what they have told you is good or bad. Now, here's why you shouldn't turn off all your, you know, shut yourself off from the world. 
there's good advertisements out there. There's quality products. There's good businessmen and women. There's, there's really valuable things to partake of in terms of the business world and even our recreational pleasures. So we don't have to cut ourselves off. We just have to be aware that it's going on. You have to be aware of the fact that, okay, I have to be discerning about the things that I allow into my life, the things that I allow into my family's life, into my home. What kind of influences on my child's mind am I allowing to be passively and quietly seeping into them from the earliest days? And will coloring a picture on Sunday counteract that? You see, you have to, you have to be careful and proactive about training your children's minds because they're born as sinful creatures in Adam. They're going to start off misinterpreting right and wrong. They're going to start off that way, and only by God's grace can they be saved, but the means which God often uses is parents to help them along that way by teaching them the law and the gospel, and the church, of course, bringing them to church, making sure that they're in church to hear the word preached from God's commissioned ministers. But this is, this is what Paul's saying when he says, set your affections on things above. As you live your everyday life in the world around you, know what's right and wrong according to God's word, and act accordingly. Love what you are to love. Hate what you are to hate. Rejoice in what you are to rejoice. Be sad, sorrowful, sorrowful for that for which you ought to be sorrowful. Now, as I bring this to a conclusion, I want you to think about something we've been saying along, the creaturely nature, nature of passions and affections. The creaturely nature of passions. and we, we cannot help but being affected. It's just the life of a creature. It's just the life we all live. And we cannot escape the fact that we live in a world of object, objects that affect us. We can resist temptations. We can resist wrong misinformation. But we can't change who and what we are. We can't make ourselves impervious to all affections. For example, if I blow on your eye, what will you do? You will blink. That's an affection or passion of the body. You cannot help it. There's nothing, pretty much nothing you can do. I'll give you... Well, I don't want to make a rash vow, but I'll give you some obscene amount of money if I can blow in your eye and you won't blink. I mean, we're not going to try it, but you see what I mean. If I do this, you're all fighting it. But you can make people yawn. You can make people yawn just by yawning at them. You know? There's all sorts of examples we could use. Can you stop that yawn? When it comes on and you're in church... You're like trying to wire your jaw shut in, so, in case someone might see you yawning at church. You're a creature. It's just, your li- it's just you, everybody. That happens to everyone. If you cannot yawn in church, then you're, you're something other than a creature, okay? That's an illustration of the point that it's okay to be a creature. It's okay to be passable, to be affected. It's creaturely. And we all know it. It's just our every single day life. We live in a constant state of fluctuation and movement. We're changing all the time based on things around us. And one of our great problems is that we've been saying that our minds need to, are involved in passions and affections. Well, our minds often don't get very good information even from our senses. The information is not always accurately relayed to us not to mention the fact that our minds are cursed. And so we get bad data and we misinterpret the world and then we make decisions accordingly and we make mistakes because we we didn't have a proper understanding of reality. We didn't really understand what was going on. 
It's like buying something from an infomercial. My brain gathered this data about this product, and when I get it, it's actually a piece of junk. But I thought that it was good. I was convinced of those things. So you have to sort of distrust yourself to a degree. You cannot think that you and your mind and your senses are so wonderful that all of your conclusions about what is good and what is bad are just automatically going to be accurate. Of course, we go to the word of God first, but there, are many, there is an area of, of Christian liberty. There's, an, there's many things in which God has not made a, a definitive declaration, this is good or this is bad necessarily. It could be something indifferent. What, what color shirt should I wear? You know, I mean, that, that's kind of a, a silly example, but the, the point is, as you are making decisions... You need to realize that you can be deceiving yourself unintentionally. Others could be deceiving you unintentionally. Not everything is always a direct temptation where someone's trying to manipulate reality and get you to sin. Just our everyday lives are affected by the problems we have of perception and understanding. If you have ever seen A Christmas Carol or read the book uh, by Charles Dickens in it, Ebenezer Scrooge is confronted by the ghost of his former business partner. And he cannot believe that he's actually seeing this ghost. And so he says, you may be a bit of undigested beef. He's saying, you're not there. It could just be that there's something wrong in my stomach and so I'm hallucinating about seeing you. In other words, he's distrusting the information that his senses are giving him and so he's unwilling to do what what the ghost wants him to do. He said, there's more of gravy than grave about you, whatever you are. And so also, we too need to be very careful before we take action and do things. We need to make sure that we have an accurate, as accurate as possible an understanding of the world around us and the information we've gathered about it before we decide and carry out our desires. But what this all says is we're just constantly in an ever-shifting environment, this way and that way, objects affecting us, affecting us. We're constantly undergoing, constantly being acted upon all the time. And our affections are like switches, going one way, then another, to or from an object, love and hate, joy and sadness, mercy and wrath, hope and despair, confidence and fear. And you can go from one to the other very quickly, haven't you? You've experienced this in your own families and relationships. One second, we're so happy with the person in front of us. The next, we're very angry with them. We have changed based on that person. Our bodies change us. We're in pain and we become sad. A great example is the Snickers commercial that says you're not you when you're hungry. (laughs) That's, That's passability. You're not you when you're hungry. This hunger is changing me and I'm acting differently as a result of it. You're, you, you think this is bad. I don't like this. And now you're in a state of being of grumpiness. You're grumbling. You've become that. You've entered that because you're hungry and you don't like it. It's bad. And then when you get your food, when you get the Snickers bar, you think that's good. And guess what? Your joy, your happiness has been restored. And you've been changed by a Snickers bar. Our love and our hate, our desire and repulsion, anger and mercy, hope and despair, confidence and fear, we're constantly, those switches are constantly being flipped one way or another all the time. Frequently. It's happening. And we're not, that's not going to stop because we live in time and space as creatures. We will not stop encountering objects. Therefore, we will never stop being changed by those objects. And when you hear that, it starts to sound exhausting. Like, could, we, could you stop? I'd like to get off. You know, like, please stop the world. You know, I'm done. But no, it's, it's just everyday life. 
it's just who and what we are. It just sounds complicated because it's in a lecture from a, in a conference. But if we think about it, it's just everyday life. As Christians, we need to be responsible that we're being changed by God through his word and by the power of his spirit. But these concluding remarks have been designed to set up the next lesson tomorrow morning. How so? Think about the previous lecture or previous lesson in this one. We've seen that scripture describes God in the language of human affections and passions. But we've been saying that you can't treat those descriptions of God in that way as being one-for-one equivalents between God and human experience, as though those things are happening to God or happening in God. And we've said that they're not one-to-one because the Bible itself tells us God is not a man or a son of man, that these things should happen to him. And to better understand that, we've just examined from the scriptures what the human nature is and how we experience affections and passions. And this prepares us to ask if we can or should think of God in the same way that we have just described ourselves. Should we think of the creator of all things in the way that we have just described ourselves? Would it be appropriate for us to take what we have just learned about parts and faculties and mind and will in time and space affected by all sorts of objects around us? Would it be appropriate to think of God in that way? You might say, well, if the scriptures told us to, then we would, yes, but that wouldn't be God, and the scriptures do not say that, as we have already seen in the first lesson. So think, just think about the question quickly with me, even though we'll get into it much more tomorrow. Does God have affections and passions? Does God interpret the world with a mind in time, in successive moments, and then respond and react with decisions of the will, either towards something that's good or away from something that's bad? Well, no. Affections and passions are not necessarily sinful, but they are eminently creaturely. God does not encounter things, evaluate them, and respond to them because God's not limited by time figuring things out as he goes. He's decreed all things whatsoever comes to pass. So can anything, you know the scripture passages, I won't quote them now, but can anything God purposes be obstructed or prevented or changed? Has God purposed something and someone has stopped his purpose and he's had to change his plan somehow? Does God change? You see, when we understand what passions and affections are, we begin to see more clearly why we call God impassable. Recall the definition from the top of the outline. God is not acted upon and cannot be acted upon by anything, either from within himself or outside of himself. Why would we say that? Because God is not a man. And affections and passions come about precisely because we are acted upon by other objects. And this is why when scripture describes God in the language of our affections and passions, we don't take a one-to-one connection between God and that language. And that brings us, of course, back to the question of what do those statements communicate? Does this mean that God has no love? That God has no mercy? That God has no anger? And you'll see that that is certainly not the case. We're going to see that what you have to do is clean the language of the human baggage. And what happens when you clean the language of all the creaturely imperfections, you begin to see those things as divine perfections. So that love in God is not an affection brought about by things around him, creatures, 
But rather, love in God is in and of himself a perfection of his being that cannot be added to or subtracted or changed in any way, shape, or form so that his love is so much better than my love ever could be as a creature. And I want to worship a God whose love is like that, not a God whose love depends upon the objects around him and whether he thinks they're good or bad and how they're acting upon him or towards him. The scriptures say God is love, not that God has love. Love is a quality. Love is something that I have, and I, it, it's a, a switch that can be flipped on and off. It can be added or subtracted, increased or decreased within me. It can be provoked within me. It can be extinguished within me. Not so in God. And brothers and sisters, that's what makes impassibility such a wonderful, wonderful doctrine. We see our own creaturely weak, changeable, imperfect nature. And we begin to see the essential, unchanging perfection and infinity of our God. Because you can wake up and not feel very loving towards others. Oh, not me. All of us. You can wake up on the wrong side of the bed. You have bad days. You have mood swings. You have temper tantrums. You have depression. You have fear. You have worry. You have anxiety, stress, bitterness, resentment, and more. You are constantly being overcome by all sorts of things outside of you. But God is, I am that I am. He is the one who does not change. He is not a man, nor a son of man. Now I have to stop myself from getting into our last lesson, which is a lot of the personal applications and how this really reassures the believer and becomes the anchor of our souls in all of our faith and obedience to God. But I know that I can wake up every day and go to sleep every night knowing that when I cry out to God, I'm crying out to the God who is love, who is mercy, who is goodness, who is justice, who is holiness. And we should praise him that he is not like us and rejoice that he is a God without passions. God doesn't have a stomach that grumbles or arms that tire or legs that tremble or a mind that needs caffeine or a head that aches or a heart that races. He doesn't have lust or violent rage or depression or fear or anxiety. God is love, he is mercy, he is holiness, a most pure spirit, invisible without body, parts, or passions. So brethren, brothers and sisters, let us love God with rightly ordered affections and let us praise our God who is love. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we confess that as we understand ourselves better, we begin to see how infinitely beyond us you are. And we thank you for that. We thank you for creating us in such a wonderful way. Even who we are is beyond our comprehension. And so we ask that you would please help us. Please help us with our minds to rightly interpret good and evil according to your word. And please help us according to our new nature to to choose towards that good and to run away from that evil. Help us by the power of your spirit working within us, sanctifying us. Help us to sanctify our affections that we might love you and rejoice in you and hope in you and have confidence in you. Our Father in heaven, please help us. We are creatures and so we look to you, our creator. We are mutable and so we look to you who are immutable. We are passable and so we look to you who is impassable. Please help us, O God. We thank you for who you are. We thank you for who we are as you have created us. And we ask that you would help us to honor you and serve you as your creatures. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.